0: Chapter 15. Countdown. Uncertainty sucks, especially to a scientist. George was in the midst of a major suck-fest when he realized that he would again have no choice but to let Jake have his way. This time, it was college. Having completed his high school curriculum in a year, earning college credits along the way, Jake was now ready to go to college 400 miles away in Berkeley. 400 miles isn't that far away under normal circumstances. In fact, compared to the trek that many college students make to get away from home for college, it is practically right down the street. But if George was right, and the events following the supermassive solar flare unfolded the way he predicted and believed they would, 400 miles might as well be halfway around the world. George had spent the last three months poring over his data and calculations, and every time he ran the numbers, he came up with the same answer. The solar flare would occur about a year from the day Jake would be starting college. The problem was the about a year part. There was simply no way for George to even have a clue about the margin of error in his calculations. Math had never been his strong suit, although he had gotten pretty good at advanced geometry. Math was always Michelle's strength. So he stared at the numbers and ran the scenarios in his head, and he pondered what he was going to do. But he always knew that he'd have to let Jake go to college. There was no way around it. Then he ran scenarios about how to get Jake back to the ranch after the solar flare. Without knowing the margin of error on his calculations, he couldn't make a move prematurely. Was the margin of error one week? One month? One year? Ten years? He just couldn't know. And that uncertainty could end up killing his only son. So with the preparations at the ranch in the final fine-tuning stages George embarked on a course of research and planning to devise ways to get Jake back to the ranch from 400 miles away in an environment of uncertainty and unknowable danger. Would the roads be usable, or would they be so clogged with disabled vehicles that they would be impassable? And how long would Jake have to make the journey before the groups of criminals and marauders were organized enough to control significant swaths of territory? How much danger would there be in the first days and weeks after the solar flare? Would communication even be possible? These were all critical questions that had unknowable answers. What made it so difficult for George was the fact that, unlike the things he had built at the ranch, which were based on anticipated threats and possibilities, the problem of getting Jake home from Berkeley was an absolute necessity and the result of failure would likely be Jake's death. There was no room for error. George smiled ironically when he realized this. No room for error, but it's all based on an event with an unknowable margin of error. This became the most difficult existential crisis of George's entire life. For the past 18 years, he had devoted his life and his fortune to making sure that his kids survived the coming apocalypse. But what would be the point if they survived without living? How could he tell Jake that he couldn't go to college because an event may or may not be happening at some undetermined point in the future? If he were off by a year, Jake would lose a year of his life and his education just sitting in an impenetrable fortress. And for what? But on the other hand, if Jake got caught outside of the ranch, 400 miles away, and was killed while trying to get back, what would all of his work have accomplished? George was wrestling with these issues in his study when, once again, Izzy came to the rescue. What you working on, Dad? she asked innocently as George was looking over road maps of the areas around Berkeley. Trying to figure out how to get Jake back to the ranch from Berkeley. He's going to get stuck there, huh? No way to avoid it, George said without an ounce of optimism. Izzy walked over and looked over her dad's shoulder at the map he was working on. Why don't we leave a Humvee for him just outside the city? If he has a motorbike on campus, he can ride the bike out of the city and pick up the Humvee for the rest of the trip. George looked at his 14-year-old daughter and smiled. as always. The answer was so simply that only a child could see it. Of course, at 14, Izzy was no longer a child. She was becoming a young woman, but she still looked at the world through the eyes of a child. That could work, George answered. That might just work. Izzy pulled another map from the pile on the desk. And there are lots of fire and logging roads and trails once he gets to... She traced a line with her finger, here. She was pointing to a place that was about 20 miles off of the main highway to the mountains. If the roads are clogged, he could go pretty off-road and make his way home. George was energized. That could work. We could load the Humvee with ammo and food and water. It would be slow going, but he has all the skills necessary, and he wouldn't be alone, she added. George raised his eyebrows. He wouldn't? Izzy laughed. Do you think there's any chance he would leave without Peter? George realized that she was right. No, I don't suppose he would. Between the two of them, I'm sure they'll be able to manage. And with that, she kissed him on the cheek and walked out. George was left to his own thoughts, as he so often was after Izzy solved a problem for him. You'd spend the next several weeks perfecting several possible routes, backup plans, and logistical issues before presenting it all to Jake. So you're saying I can go to Berkeley? Jake asked, surprised at the prospect. Did you really think you weren't going? George asked. Not without a knockdown drag-out fight, Jake said with his trademark smirk. I'm sorry to disappoint you then, son. No, I'm not disappointed. I'm happy, Jake explained. Really happy. Thank you, Dad. Jake jumped up from the table and ran to hug his father. You should really be thanking Izzy. She's the one that came up with most of the plan. George nodded over at Izzy, who was doing her best to ignore the spectacle. She had not seen Jake this happy in quite a while. Thanks, sis, Jake offered. "'He gets a hug and a scream, and all I get is a thanks, sis?' Izzy asked, pouting. "'Doesn't quite seem fair, does it?' Jake took the hint and ran back over to Izzy, lifting her from her chair in a gigantic bear hug, nuzzling her behind her ear with his nose. "'I love you so much! Thank you, thank you, thank you!' He was still smiling from ear to ear when he sat back down and frowned. "'What about Peter?' He looked over at George, growing concerned. What about him? George asked innocently. How is he going to get back? Back to where? Izzy asked, playing along. Now Jake was crestfalling. Back to here! Back to the ranch! George made a face like he hadn't thought about Peter. Peter? Now Jake was getting angry. Yes, Peter! My best friend, Peter. Peter? Peter who, is he asked? Jake glared at his sister, about to scream at her when he saw the hint of a smile creep into the corner of her eyes. Wait. He looked over at George, who was trying very hard not to smile and failing. Wait. You're both messing with me, right? Silence. Right? Of course, silly. Silly. You make it so easy, Izzy giggled. Jake looked back at his father, who was now grinning. So easy, George echoed. And even though Jake had been the victim of the joke, he couldn't help but smile. He was going to college, with Peter, who had also been accepted to Berkeley. At that moment, Jake couldn't imagine anything that had ever made him happier. His happiness carried Jake through the summer, right up until the day that Izzy and Ernie said goodbye, and George loaded up one of the Humvees and took Jake to Berkeley. Of course, that happiness was momentarily dampened by George's insistence on going over the evacuation and exfiltration plans for Jake and Peter. It was, as always, a little too crazy for Jake, but he put up with it. He was a bit disappointed at Peter, who was enthralled by every word that George was saying. All of the talk about alternate routes, camping out, communications plan, and the like, were all a bit of a thrill. Having had limited contact with George's obsessiveness, Peter saw it as all something new and exciting. The general plan was to leave two off-road capable motorcycles on campus, and they would park the Humvee in a garage storage unit, that George had found online. It was large enough to hold the Humvee as well as the supplies they would need for the journey, and, as far as George could tell, it was secure, which, at this point, was a double-edged sword. They needed it to be secure enough to prevent theft, but not so secure that it would be completely locked down if there were no electricity. With Izzy's help, they found a suitable place, mapped the roads into and out of the area, and then plotted the most probable routes back to the ranch. They selected smaller roads, avoiding large towns and main roads, and always kept in mind the fact that they might have to go off-road to avoid trouble. An important part of the plan involved Jake carrying a couple of cans of fluorescent spray paint so he could mark key waypoints along his route, just in case something happened and George had to come out looking for him. This was the part of the plan that Jake thought was the most ridiculous, and at the same time, it was the part that George was most adamant about. Under the best conditions, clear roads, no detours, and no trouble, Jake could make the trip in a day or two. But the roads wouldn't be clear, so detours would definitely be required. And even in the immediate aftermath of the flare, George knew that there would be trouble. Less as they got further away from the cities but trouble nonetheless. So George planned for eight days. That would allow Jake and Peter to take their time, being extra cautious and avoiding absolutely everyone. Since the solar flare would disrupt radio frequencies for several weeks at the very least, communication simply wouldn't be possible. So the only way for George to be able to track Jake's progress would be to look for the spray-painted trail marking. The importance of the route planning was so that George would know where to look. Even though it was the last thing he wanted to do, George knew that if Jake hadn't returned to the ranch after nine or ten days, he would have no choice but to go out and get him. George tried mightily to convince himself not to, but after several sleepless nights of justifications and excuses, he realized that it would be fruitless. There was just no way he would be able to function without doing everything he possibly could to make sure his children were safe. He just wasn't wired to do anything else. In the end, even Jake understood. No amount of complaining or whining or even logic was going to deter George from loading up a Humvee and braving whatever might be in front of him to go out and find him. This is the realization that made Jake actually pay attention to his father during the 10-plus-hour journey from Twin Pines to Berkeley. If the solar flare occurred, Jake and Peter would hightail it out of town on their motorcycles, get to the Humvee, and make the journey back to the ranch as quickly and as safely as they could. They would have 10 days. Izzy's disappointment was so profound it bordered on depression. Not only was she losing her brother, Whom she loved very much, but she wasn't even able to accompany him on the trip to college. She knew he was ecstatic to be going away, and she desperately wanted to be with him to bask in the glow of his happiness for what might be the very last time. Even in what she began to call the best worst case scenario, Jake would never be that happy again. Because the best worst case scenario meant anything and everything that would happen after the solar flare. Even the best-case scenarios for after the flare were horrible, when compared to life before the flare. Even without marauders and combat and having to forcefully defend the ranch, there would still be death and sorrow and misery. Less so for them within the walls of the ranch compound, but they would not be insulated forever. Not completely and the world outside the ranch would be almost unbearable as an entire civilization had to literally reset itself. But all of that was still far away. Over the years, especially as her march from girlhood to womanhood accelerated as she progressed through her early and mid-teens, she had come to accept and almost embrace her father's theories. While the science was still a bit beyond her grasp, she had no doubt that her father's predictions about the flare's impact on society would prove to be accurate. She was comfortable, well, as comfortable as a 14-year-old could be, with her military skills and prowess. And so she began to concentrate on what she called her social skills. While she and Jake had lived a somewhat isolated life, there were other families on the ranch. The farmers, workers, and caretakers almost all had families. While there was still some social distance between the workers and the owners, Izzy began to make an effort to reduce that distance by spending time in the various areas, talking to the families, making friends with the kids, and learning social skills. With Jake away at college and her father beginning to spend more time stockpiling supplies, Izzy's efforts intensified. She really wanted to get to know the people with whom she would be sharing the ranch after the big change. Over the preceding years, Ernie had been in charge of hiring virtually everyone at the ranch. It was no accident that the majority of the people he hired had military backgrounds. The U.S. military's actions in Iraq and Afghanistan had created a large number of former military members and families with limited career options. But Ernie understood them, sympathized with them, and more importantly, he genuinely wanted to help them. When he thought about it, Ernie realized that he wasn't being completely honest with them when he hired them. The most important thing he wanted was to be surrounded by people who at least understood how vicious and unpredictable people could be when they were in dire situations. This would form a baseline for them to be able to help him defend the ranch against outsiders, should the worst happen. With George's consent, he began to let a few of the key people in on the big secret that they were preparing for some major upheaval in society, and the ranch was being designed as a safe haven for displaced and at risk children. He didn't share all of the details, and he was even more reluctant to share details about the defensive capabilities of the ranch. But he did show each family the safe rooms and cellars and escape tunnels that were part of their housing and work areas. Most thought they were pretty cool, if unnecessary. That was enough for Ernie. As Izzy made her rounds and spent more time with the families, Ernie was at first a bit jealous that Izzy was spending less time with him. He had developed a great deal of affection for her and missed their time together. But as he watched her making her rounds and interacting with the families, he saw a certain genius in her efforts. She was too naive to do it on purpose, but she was creating a large, very close extended family. The more time she spent with the families, the closer everyone became. And the closer they became, Ernie knew, the more likely they would be to go to extremes to protect each other and the ranch. Together, Izzy and Ernie gradually indoctrinated the other occupants of the ranch to some level of competence with firearms, communications gear, and the basic layout of the ranch careful not to make it seem like they were building a militia. That would just be crazy. But they did have a full-featured firing range, lots of ammunition, and a pretty cool collection of guns, the most popular of which were the Heckler & Koch MP5 assault rifles, equipped with silencers and extended magazines capable of holding 40 rounds each. Since Ernie had long since received his federal credentials as a firearm dealer, he was able to buy and sell fully automatic firearms. So the most unique feature of the MP5, the ability to shoot in two and three shot bursts, was fully operational on all of their MP5s. While they only had three models of each firearm on display in the shooting range's office, the reality is that they had hundreds of each safely secured in bunkers around the property. And by the time Jake left for Berkeley, they had amassed a stockpile of several million rounds of ammunition. It was impossible to know if they would be able to repel a persistent and skilled attack from well-coordinated forces, but with that much ammunition, it was certain that if they were to lose, it would not be from a lack of shooting back. Things were pretty much the same for most of Jake's first year at college. Izzy made the rounds, cared for her horses, and continued to amaze both George and Ernie. George obsessively amassed supplies and provisions at auctions, closeout sales, and through his contacts. And Ernie oversaw the operations at the ranch. George counted the days, reviewed his research, and waited. They all waited. Meanwhile, outside the walls of the ranch, life went on.